Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We are in the midst of this series uh, through a section of scripture focusing on the life of the prophet Elijah. And we've called this series A Man Like Us. And you've heard me begin each week of this series by saying something along the lines of a reminder for us that this title for this series comes from James chapter 5. The end of James chapter, uh, towards the end of the book of James, James says that Elijah was a man, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Elijah was a man like us, and he prayed, and it did not rain for three years, and he prayed again, and it, and it rained. And the point from all of that that James makes in, in that verse is that if Elijah was a human being, if, if Elijah was a man like us, a human being, even as we are sinful, imperfect, just like us, then, and God is able to work in incredible ways through him, then that tells us something about how God must be able to work through us and how God does desire to work through us even today, even here and now. And like I've, like I've said, you've heard me say that or something similar to that every week of this series so far, so hopefully that sounds uh, familiar to you or at least rang a bell at this point. By the end of the series, I'll ask you all to repeat it back to me. I'm just kidding. Unless you, that made you nervous there and we need to do that later. But, but if I can be honest, right out of the gate this morning, uh, the chapter of Scripture we're going to be unpacking today might be a little odd to include a, a, in a series on the life of Elijah because Quite frankly, this, this chapter of Scripture never mentions Elijah once. Uh, we get mentions of prophets. There's a lot of prophets in this chapter, people who are doing the same job as Elijah, fulfilling the same role within the nation of Israel. It's just none of them are ever named as Elijah. We get a lot about King Ahab. We've seen King Ahab already in this series and his interactions with Elijah, his, uh, his failures as a leader of God's people, just, just know Elijah. So maybe this is an odd chapter to include in this, in this series, but I, the reason why we are including it in this series, why we are taking the time to look at 1 Kings chapter 20 this morning is because, if you'll remember another thing that I believe I've said every week of this series so far, the point of the life of the, and ministry of Elijah the point of the stories of Elijah that are recorded for us in Scripture have never been to direct our attention towards Elijah. The point of all these stories that we've looked at throughout this series, the point of the life, the ministry of Elijah, is to direct our attention to God. Not to Elijah and how great of a person he was, how charismatic of a, a preacher he was, but to direct us to the God that Elijah has been proclaiming. And the reason why that is the focus of Elijah's life and ministry is because Elijah is fulfilling the office of, of a prophet. And, and that word prophet is one of those terms that we need to take a little bit of time to think about, about what it actually does mean. But, because if we don't have a good definition, a good biblical definition for it in our minds, we will allow the world around us to, to define it for us. And, and that can leave us falling short of what Scripture actually means when it does talk about a prophet. If you were to open up Google like I did this week and type in the word prophet and start looking for a definition, you'll also get a lot of uh, synonyms, suggestions, related terms, similar words to the word prophet, at least in our modern English. 
And some of those words are helpful and some of them are not. You'll get words like, like a seer or, or a soothsayer or a, a fortune teller, a forecaster of the future. And some of those terms are helpful, some of them are not, but, but I think those synonyms tell us something about what we typically assume that a prophet is and what they are, they are doing throughout their ministry. Most of the time when we think of prophets in Scripture, we think of those passages in the Old Testament that are looking forward to the birth of Jesus. Those passages like from the prophet Isaiah that we look at around Christmas season that are looking forward to the day when God would send his Messiah, his son, his anointed one who was going to come and was going to make all things new, was going to lead his people and, and all of that. And we, and we typically focus in on those passages, and that's not totally wrong. There are certainly plenty of passages across the Old Testament from the prophets that are looking forward, that are predicting a day when God was going to send someone who was going to come and who was going to lead his people, who was going to be what all the other leaders of Israel had not fulfilled, and was going to make all things new. We get lots of that. So it's not wrong, it's, it's just maybe a little incomplete of everything that a prophet was called to do and to be within Israel. One definition you can find on Google that actually is pretty helpful is, a prophet is a person regarded as an inspired teacher or proclaimer of the will of God. Prophets are not just predictors of the future, looking in their crystal ball to tell us about what God is going to do and give us some kind of riddle that we have to sort out that will only make sense uh, one day way off uh, after everything is over. Instead, prophets are people who are called by God to speak truth to God's people about who God is and how his people are to live in light of who God is. The writer Eugene Peterson once said, everyone more or less believes in God or gods, but most of us do our best to keep God on the margins of our lives, or failing that, we refashion God to suit our convenience. Prophets insist that God is the sovereign center, not off in the wings awaiting our beck and call. And prophets insist that we deal with God as God reveals himself not as we imagine him to be. And that is why we've made the decision to include a sermon on a chapter of Scripture that doesn't mention Elijah at all within a sermon series dealing with the life of Elijah. This chapter might not tell us about the person of Elijah. It reveals to us the purpose of his ministry by showing us the immensity of the God Elijah has been preaching about to the people of Israel. Because the life and ministry of Elijah, like we see from the prophets in this chapter, has the core purpose of getting God's people to come to terms with who God is. We're not going to cover the entirety of 1 Kings chapter 20 this morning, but I want to highlight some of the key parts of this chapter to get us to see the same thing that I think God is trying to get his people to see over the course of this chapter. Throughout the events of 1 Kings 20, we're going to see uh, God's purpose, we're going to see the perception of his enemies. We're going to see some political negotiating, and it's going to end with a prediction. So if you're trying to take notes this morning and you wish I would alliterate more, there you go. We have God's, God's purpose, his perception, politics, and a prediction. That's what we see over the course of this chapter. So we're going to start by looking at 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 13. 
And to summarize what has happened up to this point in the chapter, we've seen a lot of, maybe a lot of what we might call trash talking going on between King Ahab of Israel and King Ben-Hadad, who's the king of Aram. At first, Ben-Hadad attacks Ahab and has success. Ahab surrenders, and as a part of the terms of surrender, Ahab is willing to offer up all the silver and gold that he has and all of the best people of the royal household. And after Ahab agrees to that, Ben-Hadad comes back to him and decides that, well, if you're willing to give that much up, I'll take it a step further. Uh, He comes and he says, uh, not only am I going to take all your silver and gold, not only am I going to take all the best of your royal household, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my royal officials, and they're going to come in, they're going to go through your house, they're going to go through the homes of all of your top officials, your top advisors, and they're going to take anything that they think might be valuable. They're going to ransack the place and take whatever they want because we've defeated you in battle. And at this, Ahab draws the line. Uh, He's not going to uh, stand by and let that happen. He begins making preparations for battle against Ben-Hadad. And it might seem like a lost cause. Israel is greatly outnumbered, but we have all of that going on in the background. And in verse 13, we get God's purpose in the midst of all of this. Verse 13, it says, Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army, referring to the the enemy army, the army of Ben-Hadad? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Within each of us, I think, there is a sense of justice. We might not articulate it that way. We might not admit it all the time, but at some point or another within all of us, there comes a point where we want good to come to those that we believe are in the right, and we want bad to come to those that we believe are in the wrong. And when we don't see that happen, it gets at something in us. We get angry. We don't like it. We see the Psalms, we see the prophets wrestling with this same issue, wondering why God would allow bad things to happen to good people, why he would allow good things to happen to bad people. And if we read 1 Kings chapter 20 in context with everything else we've been told about King Ahab so far in this series, we might wonder about that sense of justice. We might wonder why God treats Ahab the way that he does. You might remember in the first week of this series, I mentioned uh, that when King Ahab is introduced at the end of 1 Kings chapter 16, we're told that King Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Or if you'd prefer my own personal paraphrase of that, King Ahab was literally the worst. God withholds rain from his people for three years because Ahab worships a different God. Ahab has the audacity in the midst of that to blame Elijah for his problems. Say that that Ahab, or Elijah, excuse me, is the one causing trouble. He's the one bringing ruin and destroying Israel when it's all his fault. Last week, Ahab's wife Jezebel, we saw in 1 Kings 19, threatens the, the life of Elijah for what he's done. And in the midst of that, Ahab stands idly by. He watches it all happen, even though in 1 Kings 18, he sees God's power demonstrated on Mount Carmel. He sees God send fire raining down out of heaven, and yet yet he's okay with his wife trying trying to take Elijah's life. 
based on everything we've seen from King Ahab so far since the end of 1 Kings chapter 16 up until now, he deserves anything but God's blessing. And yet, and yet Ahab is given the promise that, that his army will be victorious. Is that what Ahab, Ahab deserves? Far from it. Has Ahab done anything to earn this? No, not even remotely. Israel's not guaranteed victory in battle here because they've done anything to make them worthy of it, but because of that truth at the end of verse 13, you will know that I am the Lord. God is not giving Israel success for their own sake. He's giving them success for His. God is not interested in winning battles for the sake of just winning battles, but, for, but in revealing his power to his people. Despite Ahab's imperfections, God works through him for his own glory. We might look at this verse and wonder why God couldn't have come up with someone better to work with. I mean, surely God should know better than to bless Ahab. I mean, we've seen nothing from Ahab to make us think he's going to truly understand what's going on. Everything we've seen from Ahab so far would lead us to believe that if he's given good things, he's going to assume that he must have done something to earn it. It's all him, and he's going to take credit for it all. So if you're God, why would you let good things happen to Ahab? If he's not going to understand what is going on, if he's going to think it's all on him instead of all on God, why, why would you let this happen? This is going to make the situation worse, not better. Why would God do good to someone who has shown us they are very much inclined to do bad? And that same question might be asked of each and every one of us, each and every day. Just as Ahab does not deserve good, Ahab does not deserve God's blessing, we don't either. And in saying that, I'm not suggesting that life is perfect for each and every one of us as you're listening to me this morning. I know life can be hard. I know that life currently is hard for a lot of you. But what I'm saying is that God always treats us better than we deserve. We are sinful people who, apart from God, deserve nothing aside from death. We don't deserve the beauty of a new sunrise each day. We don't deserve the beautiful colors of fall. It felt like fall when I wrote that line. That feels a little more like winter this morning, but you get the point. We don't deserve salvation delivered to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, God does not cast us aside. He invites us in so that we might know that He is the Lord, that He is the one true God overall, not for our own sake, not because God needs something from us or feels obligated to give us something, but because God in his perfect love desires good for his people. God desires that we would know that he is the Lord. And in light of that knowledge, we might live for his purposes for us. And so because of that overarching purpose, God gives direction to Ahab and to his army about how they should go about uh, this battle with Ben-Hadad, and they're victorious. And after that victory, a prophet comes to Ahab again and tells him to start making preparations. 
says that, that once spring rolls around, Ben-Hadad is going to attack again, and so get ready. And this next passage we're going to look at shows us the perception of Ben-Hadad as he and his advisors try to make sense of the ways of God. Jumping down to 1 Kings 20, starting at verse 23, it says, Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, advised Ben-Hadad. Their, their gods, the, Is- the Israelites' gods, are gods of the hills. That's why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains... Surely we will be stronger than they. Do this. Remove all the kings from their commands and and replace them with other officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost, uh, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, so we can fight Israel on the plains. Then surely we will be stronger than they. He agreed with them and acted accordingly. And the next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats, while the Arameans covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. The theology of much of the ancient world operated under the assumption of home field advantage. Outside of Israel, there was no conception of a deity that was a God who was over all things. The, the, the thinking generally was that, that the gods were basically like human beings, just a little stronger. Uh, They had all of our imperfections, our faults, our own failures. They just had power over nature and things like that, and they could control things. And so because they were just like human beings, they couldn't be everywhere at once, just like how you and I can't be everywhere at once. And for that reason, uh, you you had to to know which God was present in which places at which times. So looking at the battle that has just taken place through that lens... The logic of the Arameans is that the Israelite army is successful because their God is more powerful than the God that they worship. And therefore, if they move the battle to a different location, the God of Israel won't be as powerful anymore, and then they will have the upper hand in battle. So they, they, based in that assumption, they go about rebuilding their army for, for battle the next spring. And, and just like before, Ben-Hadad and his army far outnumbers the army of the Israelites. And if we're viewing this all as as King Ben-Hadad or as a member of his kingdom, or if we're viewing this simply as people with a general understanding of math and military strategy, everything seems to be in in the favor of Aram. I mean, they have a far larger army. They've moved the battle from the hills to the plains, which... Like we've already talked about, they, they think is important for theological reasons. But not only that, we, we were, told, were told at the beginning of this chapter that, that, Israel, or that the Arameans excuse me, have an army largely composed of horses and chariots. Horses and chariots are much more useful on flat ground as opposed to hilly ground. So everything is setting up for their success. And it is, until we get to that message in verse 28. God sends a message very similar to the one from verse 13. God's going to bring victory to the army of Israel. But notice again why that victory is going to come. 
God does not say the Israelites have been good boys and girls for the past week, and so he's in a good mood, and he's going to be generous to them. He doesn't say that he was really impressed with their military training over the last few months, and so he's going to tip the scales in their favor just a little bit to get them over the edge into victory. He says he will bring victory to the Israelites so that they will again know that he is the Lord. God is bringing victory to Israel again, but again, it is not for their sake, it is for his. It's for the sake of demonstrating to a wayward people that that the Lord and the Lord alone is where they should put their trust. And in a lot of ways, that message is the second verse of the same song we saw back in verse 13, But, but I take the time to focus on it because I think it reveals something pretty significant about our God. It might be something that seems obvious when I say it, and maybe it is, but I think it's easy for us to default into this sort of thinking without even realizing it. Things aren't going well. It must be because I haven't been to church in a while or because I don't read my Bible as much as I used to. Once I start doing that, then things will get better. And that's the same logic that we see from the Arameans in this passage. God must not be big enough to be everywhere at once and therefore... We need to go about doing the right things in the right way and the right place at the right time so that we can get his attention or or get away from his attention so that then we can have success. And God is so much bigger than that. He is not just a God of the hills. He is not just a God of the valleys. He is not just a God on Sunday morning and not a God on Monday afternoon. He is not just God as long as the right people are in elected office. He is God. He is the Lord. He is far more than any limitations we put upon him, and he desires for us to know that even today. God's purpose through all of 1 Kings 20 is to call his people to recognize that he is the only thing they ever need to put their hope and their trust in. And that's a lesson God's people need to be reminded of regularly, and maybe we need that reminder even right now. Whatever you've gone through in the last week, whatever's in store in the week to come, know that the Lord is God, and know that He can be trusted. We're going to skip down a little bit, but things play out exactly as God says it would. Israel has victory in battle, and then we pick up in verse 31 at how Ahab deals with the politics around surrender. His officials said to him, his officials uh, said to King Ben-Hadad of Aram, Look, we've heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads. Perhaps he will spare your life. Wearing sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, "Uh, Please let me live. The king, King Ahab, answered, Is he still alive? He's my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your your brother, Ben-Hadad, they said. Go and get him, the king said. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come up into his chariot. I will return the cities my father took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. And you may set up your own market areas in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Nahab said, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with him and let him go. 
In the last passage, we looked at things from the perspective of military strategy as opposed to God's perspective. And for this passage, if it's helpful, let's look at things from the angle of political negotiation as opposed to God's commands. Because in this passage, Ahab does some pretty savvy bargaining. He shows himself pretty good at at what we might call diplomatic relations. As he negotiates the terms of surrender, he just shows a pretty poor theology. After Ben-Hadad realizes he has been defeated, he begs for mercy. He dresses like like someone who's been conquered and, and is in mourning, sackcloth around their waist, a rope around them so they could be led like a prisoner. And in that garb, he, he begs for his life. And that plea for mercy works. Ahab calls him his brother, even though their armies have just been fighting each other in battle. Ahab invites him up into his chariot, a cultural sign that, that Ahab viewed him as a, as a peer, as an equal. Then Hadad offers him the return of territory. He says, you can have back these cities that my father took from your father. He offers him commerce. He says, you can do, set up, uh, you can do business in, in my city of Damascus. So Ahab has increased the territory that, that he rules over. He's opened up some new streams of revenue for his kingdom. Everything seems pretty good. They draw up a treaty to make everything sound official. Ben-Hadad is given his freedom. And from the perspective of politics, this is a pretty rousing success. I mean, think about where Ahab was at at the beginning of this chapter. He was on the brink of being conquered completely, of becoming a a servant of King Ben-Hadad. And now he has a a treaty in place, a legal document, saying that these two nations view each other as equals, and they're going to work alongside one another for the betterment of both kingdoms. And that's all well and good. It's just not what God commanded. God didn't deliver a message to Ahab and say, I'm going to give you victory so that it will strengthen your political standing, so it will make your nation stronger. Ahab was given victory so that he could see the supremacy of the God of Israel. And he's missed it. And the last section of this chapter shows us the fallout from Ahab missing what God has been revealing over the course of this chapter. Continuing at verse 35. By the word of the Lord, one of the, prophet, one of the company of the prophets said to his companion, Strike me with your weapon. But he refused. So the prophet said, Because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. The prophet found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. And then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with his headband down over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went into the thick of the battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he's missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. And while your, your servant was busy here and there, the, the man disappeared. That's your sentence, the king of Israel said. You've pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life 
your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. First off, we should probably deal with the weirdness of verses 35 and 36. It's not often I get a chuckle while I'm reading scripture, but I got it, got it right there. <clears throat> Excuse me. A prophet asked someone else to hit him in the face. And the person says no, which is probably good manners, but then it ends up costing him his life. And doesn't that seem absurd? Doesn't that seem a little over the top? Well, maybe. But it gets included here to demonstrate to us, first off, uh, that what this prophet proclaims is truly the word of the Lord. And secondly, it gets included to show the seriousness of disobedience. Not following the clear commands of God will ultimately cost Ahab his life, just as it cost this person their life. So after we deal with that, this prophet goes before the king with this story about how he was guarding a, a prisoner of war, and, and then the prisoner escaped, and Ahab doesn't have very much sympathy. He essentially says, you know what you signed up for. You knew that if you let this, this prisoner go, it would cost you your life, so you shouldn't be shocked. And the prophet turns around that sentence and pronounces it over Ahab as well. He's not followed through on the calling God placed over him, and that disobedience is going to cost him his life. That's the consequence of attempting to use God for personal advancement as opposed to following the call of God first and foremost. And as God's people today, that is the lesson for us from this text. God will not be contained. God is not a means that we can use to our own ends. He is the end himself. Jesus does not come to us and tell us that if we follow his teachings, we'll be healthy and wealthy and wise. He comes to us and tells us that if we listen to him, if we follow him, we will have life with him. And that life with him is far better than being healthy or wealthy or wise. It's life that's eternal. It's life that is life the way that we were created to live. And we should not to the level of wanting to use Jesus for our own ends when we can have that instead. When I make the drive from here to my parents' house, I always just plug their address into my phone and start driving. And that's usually pretty helpful most of the time. Because uh, once I get basically south of Spring Valley, I, I'm totally lost. I need all the help I can get. When you're somewhere in the middle of Iowa and there's corn everywhere, you need about as much direction as you can, you can find. And so I usually just start driving south, and wherever the phone tells me to turn, that's where I turn. Sometimes it's, it seems strange and odd, and I don't understand it, but I don't argue with the computer, so I just keep driving. But, but then as I get closer to home, once I get about a little over an hour from my parents' house, it's territory that I know. It's roads that I've driven hundreds of times. I don't need a computer telling me where to turn at that point. And so usually, by the, for the last hour, hour and a half of the drive home, I, I reach over, I turn the GPS off, because I know where I am and I know what I'm doing. And when I think about my own life, I think about times where I do the same thing with God. Uh, when things are difficult, when things are confusing, when we don't know how to make sense of tragedy and we don't know what to do, we are all for God's direction. 
we will come before him and, and do whatever we think he might be saying and follow his commands and, and, and lean on any advice or direction that we can find. But then things calm down. Life gets a little easier. We're, in, we're on roads. We're in territory that we know. We can reach over and turn the GPS off because we don't need any help right now. And in doing that, trying to contain the God of the universe, trying to limit what he has authority over and where he can work, what he can do. And when we try to contain God, when we try to put him in a box where he has authority only over certain areas of our life, or we let him control, let him have control until we figure things out and then we take control back, when we do that, we're missing out on the life God is inviting us into. So if that is you this morning, I don't say all that to make you feel better, give you a guilt trip. I say all of that to give you an invitation into a deeper life with God. God will not fit into any kind of box that we try to shove him inside. God is the box himself that we find our meaning in when we come to him. And when we come to him, not wanting to use him for our own ends, but to be used by him for his purposes for us and for our world, we find life with him, life that is, that is far better as he uses us for his purposes. May we all want to come here to God so that we can experience that life. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your goodness to us that when we, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because of that, we rejoice at the life we have in you. Because you have done all of that for us, God, we offer ourselves to you. You're God over all. You're in control of all things. You're perfect in every way. So forgive us for when we try to find imperfect solutions instead of finding you. Help us come before you in faith to give you all of our trust, to know that you are good to us and that when we give ourselves over to you, you will not lead us down paths that are bad. Through the highs and lows of life, God, we know that you're good to us and that you're at work in our lives and in our world around us. So help to give you authority in all things and experience life with you. In the Son's name that I pray, amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.